A good story is everything. It can inform, enlighten, inspire, ignite, motivate, challenge, or entertain. Stories, narratives, they are core to what makes us human, and as old as time itself. When I decided to write a book, I reviewed dozens of nonprofit leadership books and found the conspicuous absence of the critical role storytelling plays in a thriving nonprofit. So in my book, you will find a chapter called You've Got to Get Me at Hello. For a podcast about storytelling, I found us a pro. You bet we will talk about storytelling and what makes one stick, but wait, there's more. Our guest today has lived in the nonprofit sector and then moved to the for-profit sector, the opposite of the path I took. So we'll talk about the value each sector brings to the other, but wait, there's still more. Our guest today is a startup expert. I've often said that the nonprofit vibe or gestalt is very, very similar to that of a startup. So settle in and you might want to take notes. Welcome to Nonprofits Are Messy. Not enough money, too many cooks, and an abundance of passion. Leading nonprofits isn't easy. Joan Gary, the dear Abby of nonprofits, gets it, and she is here to help. My guest today gets people at hello with every project he develops. Alex Bloomberg may be best known as the founder of Gimlet Media, started in 2014. Initially pitched as the American Podcasting Corporation, Gimlet Media is a podcasting business. Bloomberg documented the startup process in the first season of a podcast hosted on Gimlet Media titled Startup. He received his BA from Oberlin College and currently an adjunct professor of journalism at Columbia. From 1999 to 2014, he was the producer for the public radio show This American Life, and his stories were regularly featured on that show. From 2007 to 2014, he was that show's executive producer. Alex, I really can't thank you enough for joining me and for inviting me here to this magical place called Gimlet Media. <laughs> well, it's, it's wonderful to have you here, Joan. Thanks, uh, thanks, thanks, for, thanks for showing up. Thanks for coming to Brooklyn. Yeah, I, um, this isn't the Brooklyn I remember that I lived in after college yeah. in the late 70s. <laughs> yeah, I'm, yes, I'm yeah. sure it's very different. Yeah, no, you wouldn't have gone on this street yeah. then. Yeah. Um, so in the intro, I, I mentioned my own belief in the power of storytelling to move a nonprofit from kind of messy to thriving. So why don't we just start there? Tell me what you see as the most important elements of a great story. Um, well, I think, I think you have to, uh, well, I, I think getting people to care is the, is the, is the most important part of a story. Um, and to get people to care, you have to know why you care. Um, so I think the, the first thing that most, the first mistake most people make is they don't, they don't, they haven't figured out why they care. And so they can't tell their story to somebody else because they don't even know why they why they care about it. Um, and so figuring out like what drives you, what makes you interested in, in the thing that you're doing, that enables you to sort of tell the story. So when you were at This American Life, mm -hmm. um, what made you care? Like, did you care? Did you have to care about each individual story, or did you have to did you have to care about the concept? I had to find something to care about in each individual story. I had to find something that I found particularly interesting about each story that I was doing um, in order to like figure out why why it should be on the on the radio I had to find something that surprised me something that like something that I really found sort of universal or something that I really connected to in the character um, and then and then I think you have to um, then you have to get you have to set up a question in people's minds when you when when people start so people will start a a speech or they'll start talking or whatever. Um, 
and they don't they you the if you want people to listen to you <laughs> you have to you, you have to work for it <laughs> you know what i mean you have to be you have to be thinking like um how, this person could be doing anything and they're listening to me so i have to make it worth their while i have to be surprising them i have to be making them laugh i have to be making them feel something or i have to be importing really really valuable information um and if you're not doing any of those things uh then you're not then you're not doing it right. Then you should you, then you got to figure figure out how to tell your story better. Well, and part of that is about cutting through the clutter too, yeah. right? I mean, it's I feel like certainly in my work with clients and they're trying to establish a message or tell a story that nonprofits don't realize how much clutter there is to cut through and why those things you're talking about are right. so important. Yeah, they don't. And and oh, somebody who hasn't figured out the clutter, um, any kind of jargon is just deathly. Like the minute you start using jargon, it's deathly. The minute you assume somebody understands the problem you're trying to deal with, it's it's deadly. So like, so I think a big thing that a lot of people make, a lot of nonprofits make, and just companies in general, is that they're they're so steeped in what they've been doing, and they uh, they see the they see the value in what they're doing so clearly, they never step back enough. And they never start enough at the beginning. I think that's a big thing that people don't do enough. You know? I um yeah. I, I teach also I teach at the Annenberg School uh, at UPenn in a class called non- a nonprofit communication strategy. Right. And I make the students read Made to Stick by Dan and Chip Heath, uh-huh. and they talk about something called the curse of knowledge. Is that once you know something, yeah, that it is actually impossible for you to imagine not knowing it. Yeah. And that that's part of this jargon piece. Is of course I know what NPR stands for. Of right. course I know what LGBT stands for. Right. 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 Right, and of course, so everyone else should as well. Yeah, exactly. And 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 they they and even if they do, um, then then it's still important to start with the universal. If what you're trying, if you are just talking to an LGBT uh, LGBTQ audience, like then you can use that term. If you're talking to anybody else, you probably want to sort of think about. Like, you probably want to use the term person, and like and like try to think about like. Here's 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 the universal thing that we're talking about, and then here's the way it affects the LGBTQ community. But but like if I've started with person, then that's going to bring the other people in as well. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. What do you ta- what do you mean when you say uh, set up a question? So I I I'm, I mean that um, when I stand up to start a, to start a talk, uh, or when we start a podcast, or when we do anything. Um, uh, well, I have a formula actually for it that I use in podcasting, which is maybe helpful. To well, it with. might actually yeah. be helpful yeah. in not podcasting, <laughs> yes. and maybe I should be taking notes. Yeah. So <laughs> I, this this came up when I started teaching my my course at Columbia. It's just sort of like the very first thing the the the, the fundamental problem that that students had was that they couldn't tell what a story was, and. A lot of times in journalism, people start talking about, they, they come in and they say, I want to do a story about um, poverty, or I want to do a story about something important, something incredibly important in the world. Um, but, and I would like, okay, what are your questions about poverty? What do you want to, what's the, what's the thing that you want to say about poverty? Right. And like a lot of times it, it doesn't, um, they didn't have anything. And, I, and, and, I, and part of the problem is, and especially in the non, I think that journalism and nonprofit overlap a lot here, is that we're both dealing with like, long-standing, intractable problems that people think they know about. And they, they've heard the story before. Right. It sucks to be poor. People know that. 
mostly, yeah. you know, and like, and like, and a story that is simply telling you it sucks to be poor again, isn't going to like necessarily cut through the clutter, cut through the clutter. And so you also have to talk about like, what is the question? Like, and, and, it, and so that is where, um, and it's hard. It's, it's really, it's not easy to do this. It's not easy to come up with something, uh, novel to say about like some of society's most intractable problems. <laughs> but if there's something that you can say that's like, we have discovered this thing that is, is new about addressing this problem, or we have discovered this thing that is a different way of like a different way of thinking about this problem. Or we have discovered that like the thing that you think, you know, is not actually the thing that sucks, but there's something else that sucks or whatever. But if there's all of those things, I would, I would imagine if, if I came to you and I said, I'm going to tell you a story about how being poor is really, really rotten. Mm -hmm. You would be like, I, I know that. And I would, <laughs> it, but if I came to you and I said, I'm going to tell you a story about like a way that is really rotten to be poor, that is not, that is something you haven't ever thought about before. So all for, of a sudden you're interested. Right. So for right? example, we're working with a client now and, uh, but let, let's say you work for an organization that's advocating mm -hmm. for the rights and protections of immigrants. Right. And I learned something with a client the other day, and maybe I should have known this, but I didn't know it, that immigrants are afraid to seek health care, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, right. <laughs> it makes per all the sense in the world that they're afraid to seek health care. They're afraid to do a lot of things. Right. And in the discussion with the client, the client said to me, well, you know, that's how the TB epidemic started way back when, is immigrants then would not seek health care. And what do you get? You get right. a public epidemic. Right. And I thought, oh, like, that's new for me. That's uh -huh. surprising for me. And I was quite sure that the world at large doesn't really think about all those implications of living in the world fearfully. Right. Yeah. And if I was going to tell the story and I was going to tell you a story, I'm going to tell you a story about, um, about a, about, a, 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 um, how would I phrase this? I would, about something about like one of the worst, uh, epidemi epidemiological outbreaks in history and what it has to do with current immigration policy. That's the story I'm going to tell you. Right. I'm sort of interested. I want to, I want to know how are those two unlikely things connected? Correct. And so then I'm interested. And if I, but if I start it in a different way, if I start it and just be like, um, you know, uh, sort of like the nation's undocumented immigrants living in fear, like this is something that we probably know. Like, we could that, assume. Like, we could we assume. Can generally and, and, assume that and life it sucks right now for immigrants. harsh when you talk about it this way. And right. I feel like I want to be clear. Like, I, <laughs> I understand that it sounds harsh, but it's like that. It, the, the, the faster you can get over that and just sort of like assuming that people will pay attention because it's important to pay attention is the worst assumption you can make. So I, um, I, I wanted to ask you what gets in the way of a good story. And you actually rattled off a couple of those mm -hmm. things. You rattled off jargon. Mm -hmm. You rattled off assuming. Right. What else would you say gets in the way of someone being able to tell a good story. The big, the other biggest thing is lack of specificity. So another way into, let's say you don't have a great angle for the for the immigrants for for a story about like immigrants and access to healthcare, and let's say you don't know, you couldn't link it to deep TB, whatever. You don't have a you don't have a great right. lead. Okay. Um, 
But what you could do is you don't start with like, this is the story that you've heard about immigrants living in fear. You could start with sort of like, here's, here's, um, here's a woman who, uh, who loves to play, who is, and think of the most interesting counter to stereotype fact you can about her. What she really loves to do is she has this huge Archie Comics collection. Or her favorite thing, <laughs> she's like, her her code name is like, you know, Demon Fighter in World of Warcraft. Right, right, or whatever, you know, right, like right, totally. so, something that does not read immigrant story. And then you start with that fact. And then you, and then you have another fact about this person who is like sort of like, and then hopefully that fact is very incongruous. Like, people are fascinating. They're fascinatingly complex. They contain multitudes. Find the two most disparate parts of that person's personality, put them together, and then talk about like, oh, here's this person now that I'm intrigued by. How is this person like this and like this? Mm -hmm. um, and now tell, and then I care about that person, and now I'm invested in worrying about them and their lack of access to healthcare. So, so that's the other thing that people don't do at all, is that they, they just sort of say, here is a person, here is an immigrant. Or they and like, even... as if they're all the same, as if everybody is like, as if these aren't individual people with individual loves and hates and desires. And so, and like, to me, that is the most important thing. And don't make it the sappy ones. Make it like the ones that you've seen on the, you know, make it like interesting ones. Make it like whatever, like, you know, something that like isn't the, 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 the more surprising the fact given whatever the stereotypical view of whatever the thing is you're talking about, the better. You're right. I, I, it's really interesting. So I heard jargon. I heard <clears throat> don't assume. I heard a lack of specificity. Mm -hmm. And in, in what you just said, I also heard one of the ways you really cut through the clutter and sort of get someone at hello is for that specificity to be intriguing yes. and draw you in in some way yeah. that you would not have thought about yourself. Yes. Surprise yes. is a very, Surprise is a big very component, overlooked right? component also. And like it's so interesting people. because, and I don't know if it's because of all these things, and then I want to move on to another topic while I, um, while I have your brain in front of these microphones, um, <laughs> is um, how often nonprofits forget to bring their work to life. And so I'll get a whole board of directors together and I'll workshop storytelling because if you can, I always say that credible messenger plus compelling story equals new stakeholder, mm -hmm. donor, staff member, board member, volunteer, whatever it is. Right, right. right. And so you'll do something, you know, some organizations are harder to describe than others, but some of them are direct service. So maybe it's a Meals on Wheels program right. or a program that, that picks up food from supermarkets and delivers it to food pantries. Mm -hmm. And amazingly, you'll get board members talking about the numbers of meals that they say, how, much, how many pounds mm -hmm. of food they bring to the pantry. But I rode a truck one day with... You know, with John, who's been working for that comp for that organization for ten for fifteen years, and we put the stuff on the truck, and he said, "Leave the lettuce and the tomatoes and the peppers towards the back of the truck because our first stop is blah 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 food pantry, and Tuesday is fajita day." Uh, right. right. And so, yeah, like it was like a completely different, know. right? Yeah, it was yeah, a completely yeah. different experience. Like I wanted to, I wanted to meet the people who made fajitas on Tuesdays. Yes, right. Yeah. And and people just miss that. Yeah. Um. So, you bring to this conversation not only an expertise in storytelling, but also an experience working in the world of nonprofit. Mm -hmm. So, this American Life was a program produced by a nonprofit media entity. Um. 
Uh, but NPR is no small nonprofit. What was it like to work for a nonprofit? Um, and this question will become relevant when we start to talk <laughs> about how you designed yeah. Gimlet. And just to make just to, just to, just because like there's like uh, I just want to be accurate about where so this American Life and NPR are completely separate. Right. This American Life was uh, uh, was part of WBEZ, which is a nonprofit, but then it, yes. now it has become its own. Uh, I think it's a B Corp now, so it's a it's a for profit structure. This American Life. Is. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. And then NPR is, is, is of course a, a nonprofit. Um, and I I worked for everybody, so I worked at WBEZ. I also spent a lot of time inside NPR. I never officially was on their payroll, but I was there all the, all, all day, every day. I for appreciate the distinction. That makes sense. Um, just this is just for me and the, my relationships more than your listeners. But that's that. I would not advocate it in that you're storytelling. But uh, but <laughs> it's a little inside <laughs> it's baseball. It's a little inside baseball. But unfortunately, I have to say it anyway. So the, to answer your question, um, what was it like? So. I think working in a nonprofit is 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 wonderful in many ways because I think it draws people who are committed to a mission, and so like I felt and 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 you feel like common cause with those people, um, and they feel like they're you feel like you can trust their motives. They're driven more by the commitment to the issue than they are by say money or other things. Mm-hmm. Um, so so that felt good, um, and then there's also like it it can be if the if the leadership is right and the mission is right and the mission is on point enough it can feel very very uh freeing in that you know exactly what you're supposed to be concentrating on i think what i found at npr was that sometimes the non-profitness of it did the opposite um in that um like i guess what i'm saying i think nonprofits it puts a special onus though on the leadership because there's something about running a for-profit, which I now run, <laughs> that that is where um, making a profit is, it's certainly not the only thing. It's not even the most important thing, but it is a key existential thing. Completely. That will guide your behavior. Totally. Um, and it doesn't control your behavior. I think there's a lot of demonizing of for-profits that goes on out there. Like, I think if everybody was just driven by the profit motive, we'd all become commodities bankers or derivatives bankers there's lots and lots of reasons people open businesses and like making a profit is only one part of much of them, but you need to make a profit to run a business. And so that becomes a key part of your thinking at a, at a not for profit, you need to like get money, but it's not like you, you, who you are sort of like serving. It becomes a little murky. I found it to be a little murky at NPR sometimes where, where sort of like, there was a lot of things that got that were continued where if there had been a profit motive in place, it would have like clarified thinking. It would have been like, this isn't making any money. This is not finding the audience that we need to, or this is not, you know, we need to rethink how we're doing this. And are, instead it just sort of like, we got a grant so we can keep on doing it. Right. Are you, no, that was my question is, are you talking about the strategy of follow that grant, follow the money and yeah. do what the money tells you to do yeah. rather than having the discipline to say, no, that actually is not part of the core of what we do and actually having the whatever fill in the blank it is that you need to say no? I think, I think, yes, absolutely. And I think, I think, listen, everybody needs to make money, right? Like for-profits need to make money, not-for-profits need to make money. Um, But, uh, but I think that there is like, I think mission, like having, making sure that the way you're making the money is consistent with your mission and is like serving your constituency in the best way possible, I think is just incredibly important. And sometimes 
I think in not-for-profits, I think there can be this sense, well, like, we're not-for-profits, so whatever we're doing is the right thing to be doing, <laughs> I think. I, I th and I think, and, I, and, and whereas I think, I, and so I think a lot of things just sort of get perpetuated, or sometimes it gets perpetuated. I don't want to, like, paint a broad brush about it or anything, but, like, I think the danger I saw was that certain things, without that profit clarity of, like, this isn't making money, this isn't finding an audience, this isn't doing the thing we need, like things just sort of persisted so, in a way that I'm not sure they should have. Mm -hmm. Maybe they should have been cut off, maybe they should have been changed, maybe something else should have been done in its place, but like things were allowed to persist. So in the for-profit sector, profit provides a clarity that is useful in strategic decision-making that isn't exactly the same in the nonprofit space. I, I, I think that would be true. I think that's true, yeah. So you also talked about um, you started to talk about leadership. Can you talk a little bit more about that? What is what does leadership in the nonprofit space need to be in order for in, just in in your in your mind's eye in order for a nonprofit to really thrive? Well, I think uh, I mean I think you you have to I mean I think it's this, I think it's essentially the same where you're in not for profit or for profit, but but like the like every leader gets lulled by the lies that they want to tell themselves. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, I know that very, very clearly now. It's so nice to be able to say, well, that's not such a fuck up because like this and this and this and this and this. And like the for profit lie that is very, very persistent that you tell yourself is that's not such a fuck up because like at least we're making money. Right. You know, even though maybe it sucks. Maybe it's like, the maybe it's like completely it is, right. off brand. Yep. Maybe it's like sort of like it's setting you up for, for some other horrible failure down the road that you haven't even thought about. You know, there's all sorts of reasons that you could be short-term happy about that. But that's the lie you tell yourself. I think in a for, in a not-for-profit sector, um, it's a little bit, like, the lie is sort of like, well, we have this grant, and even though this, this program isn't great, or it's actually, you know, we're not actually serving that many constituents with it, or whatever, but the funder seems happy. That's a, probably a very pernicious lie that can that nonprofit leaders can tell. So I think I think the challenge for all leaders is to just be like, be hard on themselves, which is hard because leading is a really hard job. But to like, or find somebody who can be hold you accountable and just be like, yeah, you got the grant. Are you actually doing what you should be doing? Is this actually working? And or is it just some sort of like half-assed bullshit thing that's sort of working? And like the funders agree that like you're getting funding for it, but is it actually working? Well, and could you be could you be using that money in a better way? Well, and I also I, I believe that your comment speaks to who you surround yourself with, also, doesn't it? Yeah. Because if a funder, if you can't the if that 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 hard on yourself thing can actually happen from your can and should happen uh -huh. from your team. Yeah. Where somebody says, "Alex, you're totally wrong here." Yeah. And I need to push back, and then you have this robust debate. It can, but you as a leader have to make sure that you are. It, you will always be broadcasting. I don't want to hear that. No matter how, <laughs> no matter how welcome, no matter how much lip service you pay to, like I want people to hold me accountable. You will. It sucks to be told that you're doing something wrong, when you're like, do you see all the things I have to do? Like, do you see all the things I'm dealing with? It sucks to be told that. And so it's really like I feel like that's my biggest challenge. I think, frankly, is to try to like always be open to like the possibility that I'm screwing up in some way, but also have the confidence of like having a vision to go forward. So we're having a really interesting conversation today with Alex Bloomberg, who is the founder of Gimlet Media, 
which is a podcasting business. Originally pitched as the American Podcasting Corporation. And he documented the startup process in the first season of a podcast hosted on Gimlet called Startup. But he also was the executive producer of the television uh, of a television version of This American Life mm-hmm. and a producer for This American Life for quite a number of years. So he's a storytelling guy. He's a startup guy. He's a podcasting guy. And I want to talk about Gimlet. Yeah. So um, let's follow a little bit about your professional path to Gimlet. You decided to start this company, a mm-hmm. podcast network. Tell me a bit about the origin of it and why you opted. We talked about this a little bit a, a couple of weeks ago. Why you opted to set Gimlet up as a for-profit as opposed to a non-for-profit? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good. A lot of people ask me that question uh, when I was, um, you know, because coming as I did from a not-for-profit background, a non-profit background, I, I uh, and and I think it was. Um, uh, the reason was basically because I thought podcasts could be a profitable business. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to set it up uh, to be able to take advantage of that. It, that my theory was, so it didn't feel, it didn't feel completely honest to set it up as a not-for-profit because I felt like we could make profits on these things. And so why would I, w- then I should. Um, and, um, and then there's a whole bunch of other reasons. Like it's hard to raise investment money if you're starting a not-for-profit. Um, you can get grants, but you can't get like investors. And, right. And it felt like. Um, and and then I also just I I I didn't want to be chasing grants. Like a lot of time, a lot you, you can spend a lot of time sort of like writing the grants, and that becomes a big part of the function of the company. And and I felt like it's easier. It would be easier if we set it up right. It would be easier just to make revenue, <laughs> you know, and then <laughs> work with the revenue. Since And since I thought we had that opportunity, I thought that's what would be the way to set it up. And and feels like that was the right, today it's, in, in hindsight, still feels like the right move? Oh, yeah. Yeah, 100%. Um, it, yeah, definitely feels like the right move. I, um, I've also become, though, uh, as, you know, I work in media, and, like, I'm sure many of your listeners are media Nonprofits and not for profits, and and um, and uh, there is a very vibrant question still at hand, you know, still <laughs> be under discussion about like what, how can we as media organizations fund ourselves? And I think I don't think every media organization can make a profit, right? And and so I, I, we weren't doing like global news, we weren't doing like sort of daily news, we weren't doing some of these other hard to sort of like monetize. Um, stories, you know, we knew we were always going to be doing, you know, a fun show about technology or a show about startups. And like, you know, a show about startups is you can get advertisers to advertise on your show about startups. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think it's harder to get advertisers to advertise on other kinds of programming. So, and and I think, so I, and I also, but coming from public radio, I think about it like in, in the way that like, well, we don't want to just do business shows or we don't want to just do technology shows. We don't want to just chase the advertising dollars. We want to be able to do shows that that sort of like that can that can we want all our shows to be able to at least break even, but we're willing to we're willing to commit money to um, shows that aren't like traditionally advertiser friendly. Um, because that's also part of our mission. Yeah, that's interesting. So it, 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 that actually leads in a really nicely to another question that I had about so you're somebody who's lived in the f- non profit sector and the for-profit sector, and I, too, have lived in both of those lands. And 
I, I find that there's a that the cross pollination m- makes me better at what I do, mm-hmm. and. There's a lot of people, I end up talking to a lot of people who are in the for-profit sector who want to go to the not-for-profit sector. Maybe they're boomers that are, you know, sort of running out of steam in their job or they have the, you know, the cash they need and think they can go and help the little people over there in the Mm non-profit space. And uh, I generally find that the non-profit space gave me much more than I gave than I gave it from uh-huh. my corporate business experience. I just want to sort of wonder about sort of how you think about who you are as a professional and as a leader, having both of those experiences. Oh, I think I think I, I think there is there is no question that like I benefited tr- tremendously from my time in the nonprofit sector. Like I don't I don't think I would be anywhere near the 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 business person I am. Um, or I wouldn't. I don't think we would have nearly the sense of mission that we have here at Gimlet if it wasn't. If it was. If I didn't come from a very, very mission-driven organization, um, and um, and uh, and and so like that, I, I think that's you know incredibly important. And I think I think the the thing that like business that drives, um, I think a thing that makes businesses fail is that they don't have enough of a mission and that you can just chase you can chase profit the same way you can chase grants right like you can be like oh maybe we'll start this up and maybe we'll maybe we'll have this line of business or maybe we'll open that you know and you can sort of like and as long and if you don't have that mission sort of like here's what we're about here's what we're trying to do we are trying to tell these kinds of stories and we're trying to tell it for this reason if you don't have that mission you can sort of be you can be tail wagging the dog really quick the cross-pollination piece, um, how does it inform you as a leader and a manager of people? Um, uh, I think I think I'm very comfortable talking about mission. I think it gives me a, a credibility also. Like if, if, if I was just, if I'd just come from Disney or something like that and I was starting up this podcasting company, I don't think, I don't think people would have as much faith that that my heart's in the right place, maybe. Um, that's pure cosmetic. I don't think that's anything that like is actually real about how I've been changed. But I think it's a real thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I yeah. think it's a real thing. Uh, and um, and I, th- uh, I, it's mainly the mission thing. And and then I also just feel like um, I I I love people who are driven by craft. And like that's where that is where where I was. Where I really learned all my main lessons w- w- was from was from Ira at This American Life, and Ira had a sense of mission, and he and he was actually a a, a, a and he is I think a great leader, um, and so I learned a lot of great things. I don't know if it's nonprofits or that specific nonprofit. Like he ran it really well. He made hard decisions about what he wanted to invest in and what he didn't want to invest in. He got he was really good at saying no, sometimes frustratingly so, but overall like in a really like he 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 did he did a really good job of like keeping that show on mission and growing it and paying attention to what mattered. And I learned a lot from uh, from him. Yeah, I also think that the management of people on the for-profit side, if and I came there from there first, uh-huh. is so driven by how much money somebody makes or what their year-end bonus is. Mm-hmm. And I, I believe one of the real gifts of the nonprofit sector is that you you don't 
you don't have that. Right. And so people are come to they come to work driven by something else. And I think that you have created a mission centric for profit organization that right. is kind of that cross pollination. But I also think that it causes you to have to manage people more three dimensionally. Yeah, that 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 could be. I, I don't know. Like I've been reading a lot of like management books now from, uh-huh. the, pro, from the you know I just finished reading the um, the hard thing about hard things. Have you read that? No, I haven't. It's, it, it's great. It's by Ben Horowitz. He's like he he's an investor at Andreessen Horowitz, but he was he ran. He worked at Netscape, and then he ran his own company and sort of like started it, and then eventually took it public after many near-death experiences. And he talks a lot about like sort of like what he's learned. It's fantastic. It's a great. It's one of the best management books I've read. Great. We'll, have, we'll add the link on. We'll, um, we'll add the link on our blog as well. But but he was saying one of the biggest. Um, one of the biggest, and I'm gonna fuck up the lesson now. But he was <laughs> saying that one of the biggest pieces of advice he always, he, he got was that like. Um, you should be making like the your work should be about um, people, place, and profits in that order. Mm-hmm. So that you should be investing in people. It should be you should be making the place the, the greatest place to work that you can, and then profits after that. And um and that's from the the for profit sector. I think so. Like I think in enlightened for profit companies, I think the, ch- the thinking is very similar. That's and very that, interesting. Like, like if if all that's keeping your employee at your at your place of employment is salary then something's gone wrong. Like they need to feel involved in something bigger. I want to talk for just one second, and I just have, we have time for like two more questions here. I began my career at MTV in 1981, about three months before it launched. So I know a lot about startups. Yeah. Uh, I began my tenure at GLAAD in 1997, and I made the pitch to the board that they should hire me with no nonprofit experience because I felt like startups and nonprofits were similar, that they had a very similar gestalt. And I wonder if you see that too and what that might be about. Yeah, I think absolutely. I think both startups and nonprofits are started by people who see a problem and want to try to fix the problem. I think that is absolutely, or see an opportunity. Like with startups, it's sometimes like they see a market opportunity. So and at MTV, it was, yeah. it was a problem that there were not any ways to watch music. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> what do we do to fill that gap? <laughs> there was still 3% of teenagers that were not watching TV. <laughs> they were listening to the radio. How do we fix that? Um, no, but... Uh, yeah, but I th- so but but I do think that there is that there is like there is the 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 people who start both are people who are trying to change something who see something in the world that they feel like needs to be changed or needs to be fixed, and I think that's why I started. I'm not a serial entrepreneur. Like I would never have started some other company, but the only reason I started Gimlet is because I was like, man, I'm just sitting around here and like podcasting are taking off. They really are people. I can see it. I can feel it. Like it's really happening. And somebody should start some company that like makes more podcasts. That was literally that was that was my thought. And I kept on looking around and being like, somebody should do it. And I talked to NPR. And I'm like, you guys should do it. We should do it. And it was just it was hard. And then eventually it was just like I couldn't get. It was like it was like oh maybe I'll I'll do it. But it was very much like that was the thing that I saw. That, so we're talking yeah. about a gap or a problem to be solved and, yeah. and the drive and determination to yeah. do what it takes to make that happen, yeah. even though when you start, you don't exactly know where the money is going to come from. Right. 
Yeah, you don't know. Right, the key is getting the right you have people, to, you, and you have right? To, you have to invest. You, so a lot of it is about your sense of your sense of in 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 like the mission that you're on. You have to be a, a little bit like a crazy person that you believe in something that doesn't exist, mm-hmm. and then you have to loop other people into your hallucination. <laughs> <laughs> right, mm-hmm. <laughs> that there no, there is this thing that doesn't exist, and you, I, you believe it now, and you believe it now, um, and then you also have to convince people to give you money, right? So or, like, or in yeah. a case of a nonprofit, this small little nonprofit is going to change how people view immigrants, gay yeah. people, right? Yeah, and you have to believe that this this group of ten people on a board of fifteen, yeah. is going to be able to make dramatic change in the universe. Yes, absolutely. And 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 then you have to bring the people with money into into that belief and you have to convince them to fork over the money. Mm-hmm. Um and I would I would bet that like I mean I think investors are investing money because they want to re- return so there's some of that but like a lot of the reasons are probably pretty similar. Yeah. Like a lot of the reasons are sort of like I believe in I believe in you. I think you've diagnosed something that's real and I want the thing that you've Maybe you need a exist. season of startup about a non startup of a nonprofit. We've we've talked about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, yeah. so because they really do sort of seem yeah. to be on similar planes. Anyway, we and you are out of time. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, this was was really interesting, and I am so about how important it is for nonprofits to build a culture of storytelling for people to be comfortable telling the story of their nonprofit and to be able to do so in a way that's really sticky. And I think you offered uh, such a lot of good insights about that today. So I really appreciate your time. Thank you. It was really fun. Um, So I just want to, before I leave you, want to remind you of a couple of resources that are out there uh, that we provide. First of all, you can always visit our blog at joangary.com. That's G-A-R-R-Y.com. This, along with all of our other podcasts, are available on my blog as well as on iTunes. And we have an upcoming free video workshop on how to create a thriving nonprofit. It's online. It's free. It begins on October 4th. We created it specifically with small but mighty nonprofits in mind that might not be able to afford a coach or a consultant, but would find some of our thoughts and insights valuable, you can sign up for that workshop at www.thrivingnonprofitsingular.org. Until next time, thank you so much for everything that you do, for your drive, your motivation, and here's to some good storytelling. We'll see you next time. Nonprofits are Messy is a service of Joan Gary Consulting. Widely known as the Nonprofit Dear Abby, Joan's leadership blog reaches over 40,000 unique visitors monthly from over 150 countries. Subscribe at www.joangary.com.